how the individual, how the human being, how the the soul, I don't know what you're called, the essence of who we are. You know, we're, yeah, we're, people say, well, you're just basically, we're just hairless apes. Okay. There's something more to humans than that. We know there is something, whether religious or whatever you want to do, there's something more to who we are as, as beings. And case cuts kind of what goes through in all my books. There's a thread. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with author Roderick Edwards. Roderick has written over 10 books on a wide range of topics. Roderick has books on world history, an autobiographical exploration of his family heritage as an adopted person, and a Microsoft Excel guide. Roderick and I have a terrific conversation about his walk of life, what inspires him, if there's a through line between his topically varied books, and the importance of nuance over sensationalism. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Roderick Edwards. How are you doing tonight, man? Very good. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure to have you here. So, Roderick, uh, among other things, uh, as we were kind of just chatting about before we hit the record button, um, one thing definitely that we could use to describe you is author. <laughs> um, you've got uh, over 10 books. Uh, is it is it 12 or 13, or is there even more that are not on Amazon? I, I think I'm on 11 now, and I have four more in the hopper, so. Okay, okay. Um but yeah, really, really interesting, and 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 really just a diverse uh, set of of topics and genres and 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 subjects in the books. It's not all one one kind of book at all, uh, which I think is really fascinating. It's not not common with the authors I've talked to, to to see that. I mean, I've talked to some authors that maybe wrote nonfiction in their career and then later switched to fiction. You know what I mean? But but it's that kind of broad change like that. Um, whereas your work is a lot, a lot more diverse, you know, just from book to book before we, we jump into all those books though, I, I am curious, who is Roderick? Where, where, where are you from? What's your, what was your family life like growing up? Oh, okay. Well, I'm from, I currently live in Florida, the middle of Florida. Just it, when you think of Florida, as soon as you say Florida to people, a lot of people who've not been here, they think, oh, sandy beaches and palm trees. Well, there's some of that, but that's like an hour and a half away from me. So where you're going to where I am right now, it's just a bunch of horse farms and pine trees and lots and lots of sand and ants, fire ants to bite your feet all the time. That's, that's, that's it. I mean, it's it's really, really hot because you're right in the middle of the state. So all the all the sweltering heat just comes on and just st- hangs over here. But before yeah. that, for three years ago, I was from and born in Indianapolis, Indiana. So it's quite a change. Mm, yeah. So in the Midwest, just it's like uh, 200 miles south of of Chicago, in case nobody knows where that is, Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, at least if you're a sports fan, it's famous from that at the yeah. very least. Yeah. <laughs> Baltimore Colts, Colts uh, sneaking out in the middle of the night come, to come to Indiana. Yes, right, right. Back in are the Pacers from there as well? Yeah, Pacers. That was always our team. I don't recall that being stolen from anybody else. They didn't right in the middle of the night, but. <laughs> Baltimore Colts came in the middle of the night, 1984, I think it was, and ever since been there. Right, right. So, well, real quickly, I was going to say, so so my impression of Florida was that you had the beach stuff and then you had swamp. 
But so there's also a middle area where it's more like the Midwest, where it's not beach or swamp. <laughs> it is. It's it's swamp and pine tree. It's swamp and woods at the same time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I mean, any water, any body of water here, you do not want to get into because there's probably an alligator in there. Right. Right. So. Yeah, I've seen pictures of golf courses in Florida where you have, I don't know how big, but enormous, like dinosaur-looking right. alligators on the course, and I, I would. And people continue golfing. I would be done golfing at that course at that time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, what was your what was your life like growing up? I mean, were you were you a writer as a kid? Well, I am an adoptee, so I was adopted when I was age four. And I don't know if other adoptees. I think so from interacting with them. A lot of adoptees are expressive internally, meaning they have to journal or or I think somehow they have these outlets. They have to have an outlet because they don't really know who to talk to. Some of them are very religious. You know, they've gone through these different different avenues because they feel alone and lonely. I'm not trying to have a sad sob story here, but it's just a fact that sure. you know, if, if you don't have an origin, you don't know who, where you actually came from, your heritage and all that stuff, you kind of have an internal discussion. So yes, all, most all of my life I've written, you know, journaling, but I've never actually published until you're, what, three, four years ago. Oh, okay. So in, like in school, were you... Were you an proficient at writing? Like I, when I was in school, I mean, I, you know, could pass the assignments, but I didn't <laughs> care. You know what I mean? I was just checking the box. <laughs> yeah. So the odd thing is I, my career for the last mm, 25 years has been data analyst. Which, mm. which, as soon as you say that, people think, oh, he, you know, he's real good at math. No, I actually suck at math. <laughs> and I've always sucked at math, but I've been very proficient at, at literature and things like in history. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I was in college level courses for, for literature and, and English and things like that. Um, and that's how when I when I do data analysts, analy analysis, I see it as like you're diagramming sentences. I don't see it as math. Mm. So, yeah. I, so instead of crunching numbers. So, yeah, I've always been fairly proficient, not to brag or anything, but it's just words no. are my thing. So, again, I think it's part of the fact that as an adoptee, you have this internal conversation. So words and meanings of words and how to express yourself and, and understand things have always been part of who I am. So it comes out one way or another. So, right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I was aware to some extent of the, the fact that you were an adoptee. Uh, you've been on several other podcasts. And, and so I was able to kind of sample through some of those interviews. And um, you still have me on. <laughs> well, of course. I'm just, I'm just of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, so I'll, I'll just be completely candid. I have a, I have a, a question that I thought of that, that kind of just is, we've only yeah. been talking for a few minutes and it just kind of goes for oh, it. Spit it out. That's nothing. You, you can't say anything that's going to offend me or anything like that. So, well, and I'm curious because it honestly, you know, I'm not adopted personally, um, but I, I have always felt a bit mm, outsider ish. I guess you could say, which sounds crazy according to the the, the modern dialogue, because I'm a, a white guy from the Midwest who's six foot five, right? So the world is is my oyster. <laughs> um, but I, you know, as a a, my name is Walker. So as a, as a kid, always felt weird because it's such a weird name. When I was like three or four, I went to a, a preschool that was otherwise all black kids, and and got along fine, but just. I don't know. I think I've always had this kind of other feeling about myself, despite not really fitting into a category of other in any in any way based on society's definition of that. Um, anyway, I, I'm rambling here, but my but the question I wanted to get to, I guess, because I feel this way with my own family to some extent, where I'm really only close with a few family members, despite having 
lots of people who on paper are my family members. What is family to you? Like, what does family mean to you as someone who who's adopted? Well, I'll speak to myself and probably a lot of adoptees, the ones I've interacted with. As an adoptee, you you decide in yourself, okay, I'm going to adopt this family. Like if you're adopted by a, a mother and a father and, and, and let's say they already have kids or they don't have kids, whatever, you 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 force yourself to fit in for the most part. You, you kind of mm-hmm. create, I call it the, a, the created or the fabricated or constructed life. It's almost like you're living in amnesia all your life. And it's, some adoptees never find their birth family, so they have to continue this this uh, charade or saga. I'm not trying to say it's negative. It's just something they do. It's a role you play. I mean, I'm sure you, all people play a role to somewhat. You're you're their, you're somebody's child. You're somebody's brother. You're somebody's father, mother, all these things. But as adoptee, you kind of have to play all those roles at the same time. So yeah, and things it changes once you become once you realize who your birth family is and start filling in the in the gaps with your heritage. It may never happen to people who never get to that stage, though. Right, right. Yeah, I just and I, I uh, again, I have some family members that I'm I'm very close with. Uh, certainly my immediate family and then, you know, a, a couple of, of aunts and uncles kind of thing. But but largely, I just don't have relationships with most of my family. And and, and for me personally, I feel like a lot of the, the I've had been fortunate enough to have some friends that I've been friends with for, you know, 20 plus years or, or more in some cases. And that feels to me like what I interpret the word family to mean, right? Because there's a depth of relationship and so I guess that's kind of my my I, what I was curious of or what I was thinking is is that is that how you view it as well or th- well, that it's really about a relationship especially after I found my my birth heritage we'll call it that I have defined it as heritage versus family there's there's a difference I mean you have a heritage that you can say okay I'm I'm German I'm Irish blah 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 you can look back and and see some of the customs and and various things that's heritage and that's something that adoptees miss family can be like you said anybody that you you whether it's family or friends or or whatever else and something we won't get to the book yet but i've written about this in a book called the universe where basically it feels like some of us have these i don't call it the old souls or something i won't get too weird mm-hmm. sounding here but okay. you don't connect with certain people but you connect with other people and they might not even be your family members and you'd have this really strong connection like you've known them in forever and those right. are the that's the strange people i'm i'm sure you've had this this connection with people because you sound like you're one of the people who you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, we have commonalities with my family. He's blood first, you blood over water, blah, blah. To some people, that doesn't matter. So they're looking for that connection. Yeah, I would say that, that yeah, a million percent, I feel <laughs> I feel that way. Right. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, it, it's just based on lived experience too, right? I mean, I've I've had situations where I needed people to, to support me and, and pick me up. And the people who I have relationships with are who is there, not the people who I have shared dna with necessarily right i think there's another element that and i'm beginning to see this not through my experience but somebody else in my family um that they feel more comfortable talking to people who aren't their direct family members because their direct family members know too much about them almost they even say that they know too much about them they know (laughs) why they behave way they would do so they're actually closer to other people because they can (laughs) they can be this constructive person they want to be rather than who they grew up to be you know it's kind of sometimes it's hard to get away from who you've been all your life because people know who you are until you want to be who you want to be and that's the people you can be around so that's quite yeah well 
and you used to be able to solve that by moving, but with social media, <laughs> yeah, you I don't, do I don't know if a person can ever escape who they are unless they just don't post. Which yeah, yeah, that's, that's I like try kids and do. Like get away from the boys at school. You know, you can't get away from the boys at school anymore. They follow you on social media, so we talked about you were you were writing always, you know, more personal writing, not for public consumption. You know, throughout your life until the last few years. I guess what what motivated you to change to writing for public consumption? Well, I was I got out of this a religious movement. I'm not not say I was, I was in a cult or anything, but I was in a religious movement. So basically, they studied the Bible very intently, and they came up with them to me with if you if you're talking about mainstream Christianity compared to what they believed, it was kind of off kilter. And there for mm. a while, I I kind of agreed with it. So. At some point, I started when I left it. I started writing a book against it, just to you know, kind of work myself out. I wasn't even sure if I was going to publish it, but as more and more I wrote it, the more and more people who've seen it said, "Hey, you need to publish this." So that's one way it happened. I wrote this book about about this religious movement. But what really sparked the rest of the writing beyond that one? Once I realized, hey, I can do this because I I'm self published. I didn't go through a publishing house. I did, did all my covers. I did my editing. I did everything myself. Um, so once I seen I could be successful at it. I said, well, let's, I've always wanted to write. Let's write about stuff I really want to write about. Because I actually didn't want to write about the religious stuff. It kind of was boring to me. I was, like, I was done with it. Mm. So once I found my birth family and uh, I had a support from my, my birth sister, I only have one actual relative who's by the mo both the mother and the father. So um, we just got together and, and started just changing ideas, exchanging ideas. And, and it just encouraged me to really write and write about, first of all, I wrote about my autobiography about my uh, adoption. So that was the first actual book that was different than the religious book. From there, it just continued to spiral and spiral and spiral about different topics. Yeah, well, and, and I'd mentioned that at the very at the very top of our, our chat here that, you know, your your books are about a, a wide range of topics. I mean, you've got, you've got stuff in there that's kind of a, explorations into history. Uh, you've got stuff that's stories about real people, including yourself, as you just said. You've got one book that's a guide on Excel. <laughs> um, is there a, is there a genre out of those that, that appeals to you the most, or, or do you kind of just enjoy dabbling in all of them? Well, I'm, first of all, let me pretend I'm a critic of me because a lot of people say, well, you need to pick a genre. It looks like you're just trying to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Well, right now I don't care if I'm making money right now. I'm just, I just want to explore what I can write about and how I want to write about it. So I'm not just throwing stuff at the wall, trying to see what sticks, what it makes money. Cause I don't really care to make money right now. So that's not my motive. Um, the reason I dabble in so much is because that I'm interested in all these things. They call they used to call it the Renaissance man. You know, you're interested in all these different topics. History. I like a lot. And I like to, to hopefully present it in a way that's not boring because history in school was always so boring. Yes. And I was sat in the history class, like if you would just teach it a different way, like for one reason, if I was a history teacher, I would have said, you know, here's three things that may be true. And one thing is false. Which one is it? I'm not even going to tell you. And I'd tell the students, go figure that out. I'm not going to have you read a whole bunch of stuff in a book. You just figure it out. If you want to look up on the internet, go ahead and do it. But at least they're doing some kind of research because research is more important. But I'd say philosophical books are right now would be one of my ones philosophical, trying to explore the uh, philosophy and psychology and things like that. Why humans do what they do. I like that that topic because it interests me. Yeah, well, so, I mean, and this is maybe a strange question, again, given the variety of, of, of genres and topics that you have. But 
and maybe outside of the Excel book, um, do you think there's a through line to your writing? Yeah, I think there is because a lot of them do reference themselves, reference other books. I think the through line is the fact that I believe there's where's a connection for all things. Mm. Like for one thing I say in a lot of books is a process is a process is a process. Whether you're trying to learn how to make cookies or launching rockets, if once you learn a process, you can apply it to something else. How many times you interact with people and like, oh, this is so hard. No, you know how to do this. Now just apply that same thinking to that. And once they do that, and once they see it, they, they see how simple it is. So a process is a process. Even when you're trying to analyze, whether you're analyzing Excel spreadsheets or whether you're trying to figure out uh, how, why, uh, I have one called the history and future of black people. People, oh, what's that about? Well, it's an exploration of how black people started from Africa all the way to now and, and hopefully in a more of an unbiased way. Because if somebody's writing a history of white people and a white person wrote it, it's, of course it's going to be somewhat biased. It's hard not to be biased. And I always, I always point that out. People are never pretend you're unbiased because we are. The first thing you need to do is figure out what your bias is and clarify and make sure everybody understands this is my bias and I'm working on to make sure that I understand it. When people say I'm not biased or I'm unbiased, you're full of, you're full of it because we all are. It's hard to get away from. Yeah, well, I think, I think unfortunately, uh, in our modern times, there's been some, I don't know, I, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but there's there's been a loss of importance on the meaning of words, right? Like bias is not bigotry, <laughs> which yeah. bigotry is, is something that I think a person should try and root out <laughs> of themselves if they have that. But bias to your point, I agree is it, it's just not possible to not have bias because you're a single individual with a single set of experiences and a worldview. And that's going to create a bias, even if it's not, then generating hatred or malice or bigotry right. or something like that, right? Right. And I always also say that disagreement is not judgment. I can right. disagree with somebody. Well, don't judge me. I'm not judging you. I'm disagreeing with you. Right. You know, so people get so, you're judging me. No, I'm not judging. Matter of fact, they used to have commercials going, the discriminating customer likes, you know, this kind of car. We, you could never use the word discriminating anymore in any kind of commercial because that would be the end of you. So like you said, right. words, words have lost their meaning, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know when, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, the easy answers are like, well, you know, the internet, social media, uh, those kinds of things and, and oh, sensationalism. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know. Um, I, to me, it seems like right now there's just a, an enormous problem with, uh, with misinformation. And, and to be clear, I don't mean on, only one side of the political spectrum or right, right. anything like that. Literally just everywhere. People just don't know what news, again, it's not even just specific to the news, but just where to trust information from. And it's interesting because people will point to like, well, in the you know pre-internet days, it was a lot easier because there were three TV channels and they were all a lot more. And it's like, yeah, but then, then you're dealing with a situation of like gatekeepers right so now information is being controlled more than it is now i think i don't necessarily know that that's a better outcome but i don't know what the way out of this is um well, it's like going into a, a cookie store and you have like a thousand different kinds of cookies and you're like okay make a choice you know which choice i mean it doesn't make the choices invalid they're, they're all valid um it's ironic that we live in what we call the information age and now people either one 
hate information more. You know, like I don't want to know anything, or they just they're confused by the information that's being put out. So you almost right. have, you almost have to do some of your own research. But then you'll see if you do that, they'll say, "Well, you're not an expert. You listen to the experts." Then you find out the experts are wrong, and now what do you do? So it's it's a catch twenty two. So it no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, um, I, this I don't this I, whatever. I'm just gonna do it <laughs> with like with COVID, for example, right? Like there are people on on in one set of beliefs that will say. I don't believe anything about it. The studies aren't there, or you know, the vaccine is bogus because the studies don't support it. And I don't know all of these individuals, but I would guess that a vast majority of these people don't regularly consume studies on anything, right? So, what are we really talking about? On the other side, though, with, with regard to like masking, for example, when masking ordinances started coming out in the United States, at least, people were so quick to to insert themselves as experts about how aerosol spray works through a map and it's like you don't know that like you've never studied that you found a picture that says it and maybe the picture's right i'm not even i don't know but there's this there's this sense of authority that people want to have with what they're talking about when they're, they're not really qualified to have that authority and again that's across the board so i don't you know whether you're <laughs> whatever side of that argument you're on fine but again, across the board, there's just um, misinformation, and then I, I think a prevalence of people advocating things that they shouldn't advocate. People aren't advocating ignorance, which is what most of us have. We don't know most things, but people aren't communicating that a lot. Well, I believe I believe we're in a cultural war, and a lot of people want to boil it down to right versus left, and it's really not that. Right. It is. It is collective versus individualism, and for the mm. longest time, America was the epitome of of the individual the rugged individual you know individuals like the republic was meant to be to protect the rights of the individual think about the little old lady who never wanted to sell her house and they couldn't build the highways had to build around her nowadays right. they'll just take her house you know there's no there's no qualms about that so we're kind of in a culture war where you have these individuals right or wrong they say this is my right to, to not wear a mask or to wear a mask or do th-. then you have a collective over here who says no you have to do what we say we're the majority, we're the experts, we're the democracy, whatever whatever label they use to try to impose upon the individual. So you've got a culture war going on here, and, and it, I don't know who's going to win. It doesn't look like the individuals are winning. I can't tell. It doesn't look like they are. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, though, is that that conversation right there is far more nuanced than a conversation about I... I hate you or love you based on who you voted for. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> so uh, yet again, it's like, there is a real conversation to be had, but we don't get to have it because sensationalism dominates everything. Well, and it's easy to, they put us right in a, you put somebody in a, in a basket. You're, you're a left winger. You're a right winger. No, it's really about, again, it's about individualism versus groupthink or collectivity. And, and I'm not saying one's good and one's bad at this point. I mean, I have my own biases, I can share them if you want to, but right now I'm saying this that is what's going on.
that leads into an, another question I was going to ask you, which is just, you know, you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned the book. Uh, let's see, I want to get the, the title correct here, the history and future of black people that you'd mentioned. And you've got a few other books that are, uh, we could say sensitive potentially right, subject right. matter. We'll get to that. Do you, do you, how do you think about writing those books? Are, are you defiant in the face of the, of that propo- proposed sensitivity or does it not even occur to you because it, to you, it's not something that's sensitive because you're not approaching it in an insensitive way. No, I, I know from the get go it's sensitive, but I don't do it because, hey, I want to be bombastic or, or you know, stir up the pot or do anything like mm-hmm. that. For example, back up to a one I wrote before that called How to Overthrow a Government. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, again, it says how to overthrow a government, not the government. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the, the picture on the actual book is uh, Che Garbo, you know, the, the revolutionary from Cuba and in a lot of central South American countries. So when you look at the book, you think, oh, this is a left-wing book because he was a, he was a left-wing socialist. But the book, if you actually open up and start looking at it, you realize it's advocating for the fact that revolutions and revolutionaries, especially nowadays, are not likely to succeed. One, because they don't, you usually don't have a plan what to do after you win the revolution. And right. so it fails. So the whole book is about that. It's a tip, it's, it's uh, hypothetical. It's not even... And it's history and hypothetical how it could be done and how it was done. But I have had reception of that because of the front of pet cover that this is a left wing book when really, if anything, it might be a right wing book only because it talks more about individuals. I'm not saying it's right wing, but it might be more more likely a right wing, but it looks like a left wing. So back to the history and future of black people. I what I want to do when I approach, I was like, what if I could be Spock, you know, from Star Trek? and be as dispassionate as possible and just tell the history of Africans all the way to present day and potentiality based on, on evidence and things that are going their future as a, as a, as a culture, you know, and obviously you can't categorize too many people. They're not monolithic, but to some degree you can a little bit, but not much, especially groups that purposely categorize themselves. I mean, you don't really, you don't see a lot of white people going around, Hey, we're white people, white pride. You don't see that anymore, but you do see it with other groups that feel like they're oppressed, whether it's black people or Hispanic people, whatever, but you don't see the majority point of call that going around going, Hey, let's look at us white people. So. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't. And, and what I'm about to say, to be clear, I don't, I don't mean that this explains, you know, racism or or bigotry away or or something like that. That's not my, my point. However, for example, my mom's mom is from Denmark, like literally came over on a boat. Right. So yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I'm a a third generation immigrant technically, right? Like I'm a descendant of, of immigrants. However, in my household, my family growing up, and, and not just in my home, but when we went to Christmas and Thanksgiving with the larger family and everything, the Danish heritage was not something that was emphasized at all. So I know that I'm a quarter Danish, but I don't really know that much about Danish traditions or the culture or the history or anything. And it's if someone was to insult Denmark, I would not feel like I was in some way also being insulted because there's just, there was never a real heavy significance put to that. But I have other friends who have uh, family lineages that are from, again, ethnic minorities in the United States. And there is a lot more emphasis put on 
the traditions and, and the histories of, of the cultures that they come from. And I think that that in some ways, and again, I don't not all racism, not the not the deep seated hatred kind, but I think to some extent, some of just the more uh, ignorant, like I mean, all racism is ignorant, I guess, but I, I think to some extent, sometimes someone like me could be insensitive to someone else, to some something that someone else is very significant for them, not out of malice oh, right. or disrespect, even intentionally, just simply. To me, that's not something that was real. Again, it's a bias, <laughs> right. right? It's a bias. I don't. I have a bias towards not putting a lot of significance on my cultural but it, heritage. But get it, get it, and you you put your finger on it here. And I think this is one thing that sometimes the minorities that get upset about white people don't understand. It's not like we have white people meetings or we start think about white white heritage. Or we really don't think about that at all. And maybe it's because that we've been dominant. I don't know. But you don't think I'm I'm Danish or you really don't give it much thought. Whereas somebody from a different culture, from the so-called minorities, I hate that term because no human's sure. a minority, but anyhow, so-called minority cultures, they have this bond because they, they feel oppressed and they feel like historically they have been oppressed. So they have this bond that maybe a lot of white people don't. We're, we're, we don't have much invested in being white. We don't. We're, we have invested in being people. We don't care about our color of skin so much. And maybe people say, well, you would if you, you were oppressed and this happened to you. Such I don't know, but I'm saying this this is the fact. Most white yeah, people well, don't sit around and dwell on the fact they're white. No, but I mean, I think you could argue that you know, if you look back at the, the beginnings of America when you have Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and they did face a lot of discrimination, then right. there was a lot of pride in their, their a, a white nation's yeah, heritage. So, you, I mean, you may have also hit the nail on the head to some extent there as well with if a group is oppressed for whatever a thing is, then that becomes something that, that they kind of rally around in order to to reject and, and fight back against. Right. That, that, you know, that's that what you'll see in the book, The, the History of Future Black mm. People. And I also mentioned the fact that white people and black people and all kinds of people will say, you know, black people. OK, well, wait a minute. If you really go back far enough, there are distinct cultures in Africa just because of the color of skin might be shared black. There's, you go to one tribe and another tribe, and they're completely different. Their heritages are completely different, how they behave, their traditions. But that's lost in the concept of black. You know, it's it's not just that. Right. And the yeah. same thing's true even in America. I mean, you, you have Creole black. You know, in, in back in Louisiana, you have you know, Canadian. You have New Yorkers. We, we need to quit this monolithic on all of us because it's not true. Yeah, well, and that, that's, that's a conclusion I came to a long time ago about these monolithic kind of stereotypes that will be used, whether it be about ethnicity or about gender or sexual identity or whatever. The the problem with those ideas to me is that they're just ineffective as tools for, for judging character. And, and I don't even mean from a, a moral or ethical standpoint, just from a literal standpoint, like to make a statement like black people X or all women X or all men X you can almost immediately identify an example of someone who fits the criteria that doesn't fit whatever the thing is they supposedly do. And so it's just not a good tool for identifying how people are going to behave. So it brings us back to what I said earlier. We're in a, a cultural war of the individual mm -hmm. versus the collective. And it seems like you get, you get collectives that get together, whether it's LGBTQ versus straight people versus, okay, what if we instead of doing that, we just said, Let's just judge me, like you said, not judging, but assess me, probably a better word. Assess sure. me 
on who I am as an individual. That takes a lot of more time, but at least you can't just lump me into one group and say, well, he's a white guy. He's a white, he's a white guy with blue eyes. He's a white guy that's five foot, whatever he's, you know, instead of doing that, just judge me on I'm Rod, you know, you're, you know, and you're Walker, not right. Walker, stranger, but just Walker. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And it's a, it's a, it's a challenging conversation to have because I, I, I don't know if there's anything I hate more than, than for lack of a better word, say it bullying, right? Like I, I really, really don't like it when someone is being picked on by somebody else, whether that be an organization or an individual or whatever that case may be. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very sensitive to, um, people who feel like they're being, and again, bullied underscore undercuts a lot of the really horrible things that some people go through. But at the same time, I don't like, as you're kind of explaining it, these, these conversations that just boil down what is really a ton of nuance into, to these easy talking points that dilute the conversation to where it doesn't go anywhere. And it just turns into a cycle of people arguing and calling each other names and labeling one another. And we're not really, it's, it's not serving to eliminate more <laughs> bigotry. Um, but it, and it's also not serving to bring people close together, closer together in any way. It, it, I don't know. Anyway, we've, I've completely gone on the crazy tangent here. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, you're still on the, you're still on the, the, the way you said the, the, the follow through in most of my books are, is this kind of concept. Yeah. How, how the individual, how the human being, how the, the soul, I don't know what you'll call the essence of who we are. You know, we're, yeah, we're, people say, well, you're just basically, we're just hairless apes. Okay. There's something more to humans than that. We know there is right. something whether religious or whatever you want to do, there's something more to who we are as, as beings. And case cuts kind of what goes through in all my books. There's a thread somewhere, even in the Excel book, actually, you know, cause I tell people, Hey, look, you know, stop trying to just look stuff up and put it on your shelf and try to instead make it part of you. You make it part of your Excel, make it start thinking bullet points, start thinking lists. You know, it's, it's not as difficult as you, as you think here. So even in my, yeah. Excel, so that's awesome. Yeah. I don't mean to keep picking on your Excel book. It's just a, <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. A more instructional sounding than it is. the others perhaps. So, <laughs> um, so th there was a, another book that I was going to ask you about that I, I thought the title of it was interesting, and that's Bandersnatch Jesus. Oh, that's the newest one. So is that is that sort of a like a choose your own adventure for? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Choose your own adventure, but you're going through. If you know the Bible story, you're gonna you're gonna come out with the Bible conclusion. But if you don't, or you hey, you just want to do something different. Hey, what if what if instead of Jesus getting crucified, his disciples you know fought the Romans and got him off the cross, and okay, that kind of stuff is in there. So you can right. see what, you might, what might have happened there. What if, what if Noah decides, you know, not to do this or do that? So there's all kinds of stuff like that. And you just turn to that page or, or if you're doing the electronic version, you click on that link and it takes you to the next page. It's something interesting. I, I try to do it. And if you've ever seen the Bandersnatch uh, movie. Uh, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't actually done it or gone through it or whatever. You should try. You it's really, it's really interesting because it's, it, you use your controller on your, on your uh, uh, Amazon your TV or, remote or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. And they just, you have to make this decision. You make this decision, and the story continues to play out and brings you just weird conclusions and stuff like. Unfortunately, though, they I think they got sued because the people had to make the choose your own adventure books, 
sued them and told them they stole their concept. So <laughs> hopefully I don't get sued because I said very, very clearly that it has nothing to do with that. Right, right, right. I don't see how you could copyright that concept, but. Yeah, I don't know either. Well, and especially like, I mean, when was the last time a Choose Your Own Adventure book came out? Like I remember Maybe. those from the, Maybe. yeah, I, they were around when I was a little bitty kid. Right, right. And I, Honestly, I just cheated the whole time. I would I would read and then get to a decision, and then I had my fingers on like you know ten different pages trying to see what outcome I wanted. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't also, do it right anyway. It also comes from my days in the early I'd say early nineteen nineties. Uh, you don't appear that old, but in nineteen early nineteen nineties, before the uh, internet really existed, you just basically went to college message boards, and everything was mm -hmm. text. There were no pictures, and so there was all these text based games where. If you want to go left or if you want to go right, you press this button. If you want to go east, north, south, blah, blah, blah. And it was it basically it was giant choose your own adventure in electronic style. So right. That, that's where I get most of my, my influence on that rather than the books that, because I don't think if I ever read night, those 1980 choose your own. I knew, it was, I knew about them, but I don't know if I ever read one of them. So I, so I host a couple of other podcasts that are both about video games. I'm a very avid gamer. So I, I'm going to go in a little bit of a nerdy direction here, real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump back out. But are you talking about muds when you talk about muds those? and moods? Yes, muds and moods. Okay. I have my own. Okay. Yep. Cool. So, yep. And then, and then one other one other question of, that's in the the nerd gaming category. You have another book called PVE: A Survivor's Journal. Is PVE player versus environment? Since this is an old enough book, I'll go ahead and let you reveal that. Yes, that's what it means. I purposely yes. didn't tell anybody <laughs> what it means. And I don't know how big your audience is. If it's really big, then I will give too much away, but we'll go ahead and give it away anyhow. It's a small book, and it basically, I played Ark Survival. And the whole time I was playing it, I journaled what was happening to my character in Ark Survival. So every oh, that's little thing awesome. That and then I kind of threw in a couple of things just to make it a little more... I mean, I didn't change that. I just try to... Like, he laid down in the sand. Well, you can't really do that in Ark Survival. You can't bury yourself in the sand. It'd be cool if you could, sure. but you can't. So the little things like that, and so... Basically, and you, I don't tell you that until you get to like the last page. So there's been a oh, okay. couple people that reviewed it and go, it's just one long advertisement. No, I'm not. I'm not even associated with them. I just think it was cool. It's a cool game. And, and I want to take people on the gaming gaming uh, journey yeah. without, without actually playing the game. So, yes, that's what you it know, is. I, I will say that, that's so that's so cool. Um, I, as soon as I saw that, I had to I had to ask. Um it's something I'll say, and I promise we'd get out of the nerd corner quickly. But here I am staying just a little bit longer. We're, we're I'm a nerd, so we're yeah. <laughs> I, I prefer a geek though. Nerds are the guys who have the glasses, and <laughs> okay, you know, geeks are the more the intelligent guys, but they can't get along with they're socially inept. But otherwise, you know, I can be any of them. Okay, um, <laughs> that's that's fine with me. Um, Arc though, it's so interesting. It just it made me think of when we're talking about you know society in a lot of ways and, and, and civilization and arc was such an interesting, um, I don't know what word to use mirror of, of the real world. Like when we went and played, me and my, my friends played and, and this game is like an open world for anyone who does has never seen or doesn't know what we're talking about. It, it's this game that drops you into this pretty large open world of, of islands uh, where there's dinosaurs everywhere, but there's also other players generally, and you can fight and kill each other. And, and you literally start out with a, you know, a stone and wood <laughs> technology, and eventually you can get guns and, and modern stuff or even futuristic kind of stuff. So the scope of the game is really, really crazy huge. Right. You play it for months. You don't, it's not like you play it one night. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not it's not Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but like in the new player zones where you start, where no one has anything and no one really understands how it works, it's chaos. It's chaos. And then at the upper end, you have players who have banded together and formed these really high level, powerful clans. Tribes. And yeah, exactly. And they uh, they are completely removed from the chaos of the new player beach, <laughs> if you will. Damn. Yes. Which in, in many ways is just like how the real world works, right? Like you've got like really congested, you know, inner city urban environments where there's a lot of chaos and a lot going on. And then you have people that live in, you know, gated communities and they don't see any of that. Like right. none of that even exists. And they're playing a different game. Right. <laughs> for, no pun intended, but kind of. Um, it's just interesting how how you can see parallels, I guess, between something as silly as a video game about fighting dinosaurs right. <laughs> in the real world. Which brings me, I, I, as you said, I write a wide variety. So politics is one of the things I write about. And I try to write, again, about like if I was Spock, if I was, if I was an alien on another planet trying to an- analyze the, the Earth's systems, their culture and their politics and everything that makes them, them tick. I try to do that. And as an adoptee, I can do that in a way because I've always felt removed from society. Right. So it gives me a little bit of advantage. Um, but I've noticed one thing. We, we, a lot of people will, will you know, poo-poo capitalism. But by nature, humans seem to be capitalistic. I mean, capitalism in the respect that we try to get stuff that improves our lives first. And that happened in our survival. Obviously, those people, they form their, their, their tribes. Now, sometimes I've seen some of those tribes where they'll, they'll go and they'll, they're very generous and they'll give the new players anything they want. They give them weapons that they definitely should not have that early in the game, but they get them anyhow. So it's not like they're capitalist pigs. There's a difference between capitalism and capitalist pigs. And so, <laughs> right. you know, but I think it's natural for us to be capitalist to some degree. It's not natural to be social. Socialism to some degree has to be imposed. You know, they even tried it. His, here's my history guy coming out. They even tried it with, uh, oh man, now, now it, that's awful. James, really? One of the first founders of America, before it was America, yeah, James. I don't want to say Brown. Now I've got to say James. But anyhow, <laughs> they tried it and they said, hey, okay, we're going to split. We're going to have all this land. We're going to have everything in common. We're all going to. But the problem is humans, some humans are lazy and some humans aren't. For whatever reason, you have initiative. And once this didn't work out, the guy said, okay, enough of that. We're going to split the land up and each person gets their own parcel. What, what you do with it, what you want, which is basically the birth of capitalism. And if you sell it to each other, blah, blah, blah. And that's how it, it happened. But he tried capitalism. And then after what didn't work, he said, if you don't work, you don't eat. That was his, his theory. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, I, I you know, I don't know. I, I, laziness is something that I have, have thought about a lot, actually, because I don't actually know if it's a real thing. Um, I think that people, all people choose the path of least resistance. And I think that someone who works really hard and and has initiative, as you put it, to build something, for example, maybe, I think that's because they believe that that is the path of least resistance, that by doing that, they will enable or provide themselves a better life than they would have if they didn't do that. Um, So I don't know. The guy's name was John Smith. I just want to get that right. Oh, okay. Sure. But anyway, yeah, I I just, I don't know. I think that, so in, in a socialist scenario, if everything is being provided, then people, I don't know if it's laziness that drives it as much as logically, why would you be putting effort forth that is not necessary? 
right? That you don't believe. Right. I, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to imply laziness, but there is. No. No. Right. If if human beings were all the same level of caringness, I mean, we we could go religious and say if we were, weren't sinners or something like that. But I'm just going to say the level of caringness for each other, which we're not. It's never going to be the case. I'm sorry. Right. I don't care how much, how many John Lennon, you know. Imagine times you play that over a million times. It's never going to be the case. Right. It's just not going to be the case. But if you could get to the society, then a socialist, a socialist society would be perfect because everybody would be doing their fair share, their fair part. But you cannot make that happen unless you impose it on people. And it's not right. You should never, I, I don't think you should ever impose anything on people too much, at least. You just, the amount of freedom needs to be there. But if not, you're, what are we? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. To some extent, though, or, or, and I, I really am earnestly asking, I guess, but is the way that we construct roads in the United States, is that socialist or the way that fire departments work or the way that right. police departments work? Like, isn't that I've heard this a kind of, form of socialism? Yeah, I've heard. And, and you're not saying it negative, and I'm not trying to respond hostily, but I've heard that argument before from people who are trying to be hostile. There's socialism, libraries and blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, no matter what government you have in every country, they have roads and they have libraries and they have all these things. So it doesn't really matter the government type. Those things will need to be provided for by somebody. And some, sometimes in the early parts of, of America, if you want a new road in the town of Mayberry or wherever, the town would have to figure out how to get that in there. And then came the highway system and that changed a lot of things once the highway system was built, which which was only built through socialism because that's when FDR came and basically imposed a great amount of socialism on America. Yeah. Negative well, or positive. I, well, and I guess my point isn't isn't like, well, clearly that proves that socialism is always good. And, and I, I, mean, I would think you would agree with this based on the conversation we've had so far. But really, my point is more that like there are nuance to things and there's a balance to things. So there might be some areas where a more socialist approach does make more sense. Right. That doesn't mean that it's the best system for everything. Correct. Just like capitalism is great, but. I don't know if it would be better if all of the roads were just done by private companies. You know, no, for they would all, they would all, they wouldn't be consistent. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, so we have right. standards for a reason. I mean, exactly. Next time you get a drill bit out or try to screw in something and find out it's not quite the same one. What metric? What's the world? You know, so that stuff. It's annoying even today. Today, so sure, sure. <laughs> so we'll, we'll go back to, <laughs> to you as an author a little bit here before we wrap up. I'm curious kind of a two-part question, you know, what does your writing process look like? And then does that writing process vary based on the kind of book that you're writing? Good question. So a lot of authors will say, hey, I got to sit down today and I'm going to write four hours. To me, for at least for me, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but for me, I can't do that because I feel like I'm jipping or cheating the the, the end reader because I'm forcing myself to write. Instead, mm -hmm. I'll go out. I live in about an acre lot here, and I have chickens and all kinds of stuff because I'm in the middle of the forest, basically. So I'll go out and do yard work and feed the chickens and do all this stuff. And while I'm out there, I'm thinking. I'm always thinking. So then once I get the, the clear thought of maybe a chapter's worth of work, I'll come in and write on it. So that's, mm -hmm. that's one process. Um, I only have, let's see, I have one fiction, which is that PVE. I'm writing another fiction. It's a time travel one. It's really interesting. And even to me, it's like, wow, this is going to be cool. Because it's just, I'll give you a little bit of hint. Of, time travel books always, or movies or wherever, always have somebody set in a dial and they go to a certain time. 
okay, this time traveling, the person has no idea where they're going They're holding stones that vibrate and blah, blah, blah. And they may go in the past. They may go in, they have no idea where they're going. So mm-hmm. there's a terror in that. So it's a really cool fiction and, and, and I'm liking it. And the process seems to be a little bit differently because I find myself staying awake up at night thinking about the characters. I didn't used to have that problem with, you know, philosophical books. I just, those were just, okay, I have a chapter's worth of information. I'll write it down and it's gone. It's, I've put it on page, but now right. I'm in the, I'm in the character's life. And I'm trying to well, wonder what they're going to do next. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm the reader. I, what are they? I don't know what they're going to do either until I start thinking about what they would do. What would they do this? Would they do that? And then they do. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to other authors that, that write fiction and they, they talk about that as well about having just ongoing thoughts about the characters and being so attached to the characters in these, in these fiction books. And I think that's, that's incredibly interesting. Um, so if someone's listening and they're intrigued, I mean, again, you've got a, a wide volume of, of different titles, not necessarily maybe your favorite, but what book would you suggest someone read as an entry point into Roderick Edwards? I would say they, they read the, the universe. It's called the universe mm-hmm. of every religion and none. Uh, the, the byline is just there to help understand what I mean by the universe. It's it's talking about how, why do humans have religions? Religions are just ideas. That's all they are. Ideas about, not just about God or where we came from, about everything, our purpose, our reason for being. So every religion and none, you know, what, how do we get to this? And how is this all meshed together? So it kind of explains my, my mindset and my worldview and everything else. So then when you read that, you should be able to launch into any of the books and understand why I, Sometimes I get very poetic and some of, even in the, in the Excel book, even in the Excel book, there's some, there's some poetry in here. So it, it's not poetry you'd recognize as in rhyming necessary, but once you start reading, you go, oh, wow, he's, he's using alliteration here. He's using this and this. I get it. But if you've already mm-hmm. read the universe, you'd understand where all this is coming from, because I believe it's all connected this, this, I don't know, energy of who we are. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, I you're, you're probably, I mean. If somebody had to describe you, they they would describe you in a certain way. That would be your energy. I'm not to sound like some kind of spiritual no. spiritual nutcake. I'm not that kind of person. I'm a I'm a data analyst. I'm as dry as you can get. But <laughs> we all have this energy, and, and they can describe what it is. And and mine's this weird weird expressive connectivity. So, no, I mean, honestly, it resonates with me a ton because that's what I'm. A lot of the things you said resonate with me a ton because it, it, it as far as your approach to to how you to your work. Because it's um, it's the same thing that I'm trying to do. Like when you were talking about a process as a process, like I largely interview people when I don't know, I'm not an expert on what they know at all, yourself included. I'm not a writer, right? I've not published any books. I don't know about a lot of the subjects you've written about. I'm going to have opinions, but I'm not researched or read up on them myself. And so oftentimes what I'm doing is trying to render these new ideas back to something that I either already know or relate it to something I already know to make it digestible, at least for me and hopefully the listener. Um, we all filter it through our, our own filters that we, we can understand. And you should do that. It's, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. So, and, and then with the connectiveness that you're talking about, I mean, when I started the show, I didn't know w- what my goal was or anything, but you know, we're talking about the misinformation and the polarization of people that's so common now. And that's the other thing is that like in talking to such a variety of people from such a, a variety of backgrounds, I've, I've just come to learn that I don't have to share a worldview with someone to respect them. And that, and this is such a cliche, but it really is true. Like as different as we all are, we're all really similar in way more ways, right? We all have similar values. Often people, 
want to be loved and want someone to love or, you know what I mean? They want to be in a family. They want to all of have friends. All of those kinds of things are really, really common. Um, they want to avoid pain. And, and that's independent of any religion or, or ethnic or religious or any any sort of um, difference that we think we might have otherwise. So I, I appreciate the connectedness that you're you're pursuing. I'm curious, are you an avid reader yourself? And if so, what do you what do you read? I used to be such an avid reader before the Internet days that I would have 15 books spread out before me on the floor because wow. I'm, I'm a person that doesn't. You know, if somebody says this, such and such said this. Well, in this book, well, I'll go get that book and see if they actually did say that. A lot of times they didn't say that. At least they didn't <laughs> say it the way you said they said it, you know. Right. But now with the advent of the Internet, I don't read books as much. People think, well, a reader, a writer should read a lot. Well, I do read a lot, but just not books. I'll read all kinds of information. I mean, like uh, the, the one book I'm telling you about, the uh, time traveling one. Mm-hmm. There is so much detail in there. I'm trying to make the person believe time travel is is real. It's possible. Matter of fact, the, the place names I put in there. You could actually go. The guy stays in a motel called the L, the L Captain in San Francisco. It exists. You could go there tomorrow. So and it's, all, all this stuff happens, and I have all this research I put in here. So, no, I don't read a lot. My, I guess my favorite author, because it's usually, Holy, who's your favorite author? Which influences? <laughs> I have two influences, oddly enough, and I don't know what's the order. But Nostradamus, oddly enough, I just like the way, he, not because of his predictions, but the way his, it, it's to me, I see it as poetry almost. It's prose. Mm. And Isaac Asimov. So there you got two different, you got one person that's talking about this crazy stuff, and then you have Isaac Asimov who, who has all this science books and science fiction books and the, the what's it, four laws of robotics, which we all know now, blah, blah, blah. Robots can't harm humans, blah, blah, blah. So I had these two influences and a lot of other ones, but those are two main influences that kind of drive my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So I'm, I'm also curious, you know, you, again, you've written a, a large volume of stuff. Do you ever have doubts about your, your capacity to do this or a lack of motivation? And if so, how do you overcome that? There's been times, like I said, the one book, the, the About Preterism book, which is that group, just a little blurb, this group actually believes that Jesus already came back. He's not coming back in the future. There's not going to be apocalypse. He only meant to, in a spiritual way that he was going to come back right after the destruction of the temple. If you read the Bible, mm-hmm. like Matthew 24, it says, and we all seen the like the Left Behind movies and that Armageddon movies where, you know, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, all this is coming down and blah, blah, blah. Well, and Matthew 24 talks about, you know, how the temple in Jerusalem was going to be surrounded and it was destroyed in the literal year of AD 70. So they advocate that. This book, again, this is your lack of doubts and motivation. I almost didn't finish this book because I really don't like this topic. I don't really like to talk about straight religion anymore because my, my religion really boils down to this now. Be honest and be honorable. So honest is obviously objective. We all know what honest is. Don't lie. Honor is subjective. What What is honor? You know, we all can define that in a different way. So I try to live by those two principles. So I really don't like to write about straight religion anymore because it's, it's to me it's very boring and kind of enclosing. So I try to get out of that by writing this book, but having the Excel book, but having, like I said, almost poetry in it. It's, it's written in a way that it's not like an Excel book. Most Excel books just says, do this, do that, do this, do this, do that. I tell people to quit doing that. Go in your car, drive fast, go somewhere else, do something else, think about something else, and then come back to it. I mean, what right. kind of Excel book tells you that? This one does, so. <laughs> That's awesome. So I try to get through those, those what they call writer's block by doing something different, by not sitting there and trying to force it. And, and I'm hoping that 
so far the readers that have told me that that they like my books is because that's refreshing to them it's not forced i'm not lecturing to anybody the book's full of content even though they're small i purposely keep them under 200 pages and, and as cheap as i can with the most the minimal profit as i can because i enjoy reading and i enjoy or, I mean, i'm sorry i enjoy people reading the books and enjoy the feedback awesome well, Roderick, uh, I, I really, really appreciate you having this incredibly open and candid conversation with me this evening. Your website is RoderickE.com, which I'll have a link in the show notes to. And then I'll also have a link to your Amazon page where all of your books are, are kind of listed together there for people to, to just click directly on. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to, to connect with you at? Social media or anything like that? Uh, social media, probably not. You know, I don't really do a lot of advertising on social media myself or the books. Just It's just general chit chat but what i would like people to look at more is is something i i find interesting is audiobooks i've i've hired lots of different narrators guys from england and various places like that and i'm actually having one book translated that the universe book translated into spanish now so if you've never done audiobooks which i didn't before until i got into this you might want to pick up an audiobook because just the way having it read to you and the way it's read to you is very interesting i think and the history and yeah. future of black people that's that's a really good one i actually picked a guy who sound like who sounds like Morgan Freeman. He's a real big time socialist. So we, like you were talking about earlier, we don't get along. <laughs> he told me, get go. I'm a socialist. I said, that's no problem. You're just here to read the book. I, our differences don't matter. So. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's funny. Um, well, Roderick, again, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you this evening. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Been a pleasure. on
only protect the love we retain. that's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Roderick Edwards for stopping by and sharing his walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you listener for listening. I also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. Both of these shows are available on any podcast app. Thanks for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. (laughs) 